Welcome to the Future Fits. Experts had been warning governments all over the world that we were due for a global pandemic. And yet, despite these warnings, many governments at every level were caught off guard. They scrambled. This in spite of an era of great technological advancement. Millions of people hold powerful computers in the palms of their hands. We have the ability to gather data in ingenious, although sometimes troubling, ways. But still... Data and tech are just tools. If you don't use them correctly, they're not much use. Luckily, we're also in an era where a lot of this technology and data are democratized. Everyday people can access them and get creative. We saw this during the pandemic. And the things these people created help combat the virus, help people in need, and empower marginalized people who are among the hardest hit by the disease. You're listening to The Future Fix. Solutions for Communities Across Canada. This is Season 2 of The Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Each episode, we present community challenges and solutions and take you to places large and small from coast to coast to coast. In this episode, we'll talk about two innovations that developed in response to COVID that have huge implications and applications in the world of health, community, and equity, even after the pandemic is over. To begin, let's meet two people from Vaccine Hunters Canada, the volunteer group that helped many Canadians across the country book vaccination appointments and which wound down operations after a job well done last August. So my name is Angelina. Hi, everyone. I am a community moderator with the Vaccine Hunters Canada group, and my day job, I work in tech. My name is Deanna Hembreth, and I am a community moderator and health team contributor for Vaccine Hunters Canada, and my job outside of that is working in public health. Vaccine Hunters began with Andrew Young, who was trying to book vaccinations for his parents and finding it difficult to navigate the local system. In response, he created an online community to help connect people to shots. The community grew rapidly, and Deanna Hembreth and Angelina Zhu came aboard. So I think both Angelina and I joined in mid-April. So by then there was a bit of, you know, the ball was rolling in terms of trying to get partnerships with the local public health unit so that we could make sure we were disseminating accurate information. But most of the time it was our team's coordinating together to understand each public health unit's requirements and various accommodations at each location and who what age groups they were serving and then 
broadcasting that information out through our social media channels and following up with the public. And that's one thing our Discord allowed us to do was not just send out the tweets and kind of have them be retweeted and let the world just see it, but also create a platform for people to come back and ask us and say, oh, I have, you know, a random accommodation that I might need or I fall in between certain categories. Can you help me distinguish which facility I should go to? Uh, so having that sort of user feedback and community members helping other community members really made it cascade into a bigger thing. <laughs> it seemed right off the bat to be sort of national in scale, uh, you know, not just a Ontario-centric or a Quebec-centric uh, focusing uh, exclusively on major urban centers that have big outbreaks. Of, like, y- you all seem to hit the ground running. H- how did that happen so quickly? Uh, well, I think that the support from the media early on and I think everybody had that sort of sense that this was going to be a great community tool to get word spreading and get people vaccinated especially with a few gaps that existed in you know delivering the vaccination services to people who needed them the sort of international aspect just happened because word spread so quickly and when there's a when there's a service that needs to be provided and people are passionate about providing it, then as cliche as it sounds, like the community just rallied together. And then pretty quickly, you know, as a uh, word got around about the vaccine hunters, you began to enter into municipal partnerships, uh, most notably uh, the city of Toronto. But I, I think there, is, there are others. How did those come about and what, what were the nature of those municipal partnerships? Well, I know that our directors were in communication with, you know, the higher up members of public health and uh, different organizations. And I think once they caught wind of what we were doing, it was mutually beneficial because they could share their services directly to users instead of having to rely on other methods like advertising or whatever methods they might otherwise use. It was kind of a direct to individual and uh, direct-to-community tool. (laughs) Then there's uh, the concept of health equity and vaccine equity. Uh, Angelina, I know you're particularly interested in in that aspect. Can can you sort of unpack what that is for listeners and sort of talk about the way that vaccine hunters, the system that, you know, this sort of volunteer network can kind of bridge that that equity gap? Um, I think so. From where I stand in terms of tech, and I'll let Deanna speak to it from a uh, public health perspective, was that for me, I work a lot with the new immigrant community where perhaps the support isn't the first resource they would go to. And so health equity really is just making sure that everyone who would like it or need the resources are able to get it. And it applies to um, assets in healthcare, such as vaccinations or access to resources. And so from my perspective, it was really working with the community of new immigrants where they didn't trust Discord or they didn't know about Discord enough to really download it. And so I did some community outreach within the local community of Peel region in Ontario and to really share the information that I had and then direct people either to Discord or to specific moderators who had perhaps Twitter accounts where they could answer messages. and enable and really help make sure that those who needed vaccines are able to get it. 
Yeah, I think what you mentioned, it just reminded me of the idea of like, it was sort of a personalized service at times because people would reach out to us directly and say, these are my criteria. I have these health conditions and I want a vaccine. And if they didn't have the digital literacy to navigate the provincial sites or local uh, websites or didn't have the computer skills to do anything beyond Twitter or Discord, they wouldn't be connected. So being able to provide uh, the personal service of understanding the concerns of the community members and what their requirements are to get vaccinated and connecting them with an appointment was often the best way to remove social determinants of health or other barriers to getting vaccinated. Mm-hmm. What I find very interesting about the vaccine hunters is is this idea that technology now is it's sort of ubiquitous. Uh, most people, uh, many people at least, have access to the ability to reach large groups of people, to network uh, as you did with the the Discord service and uh, Twitter and Instagram and all those things. And so it it's become such a big network and there's so much freedom in that, that it, it seems that you're able to fill the gaps that government services can't necessarily provide. But uh, it, it makes me wonder, how, how far should this go you know, at, at what point uh, should governments be held accountable for not being able to provide this level of service? Or or is it good that services like this that are kind of community created, they form the model and, go, uh, and governments follow that model? <laughs> it's sort of the, the tail wagging the dog, so to speak. I, I love this question because, you know, with, with all of the preparedness that we have in in pandemic preparedness and things like that once you actually get into the real life situations and the variables start stacking into the equation you know we we haven't experienced a major global pandemic since social media and even like the internet have really been around so Mm -hmm. i think a lot of lessons were learned as each phase of the rollout continued and as more data became available for governments to plan with and I think a lot of them are following evidence-based research and learning from the needs that their constituents you know, require. If we can take the lesson that Vaccine Hunters has been able to provide, I hope that it's the main message of trying to meet people where they're at and providing the help that they need on a more individual and community level than blanket policies that might not accommodate or be relevant for everyone. I think in the future, it would just be a more diverse response, I think is what is needed. Even with us, where we existed on quite a few platforms, I have heard feedback from the community that they wish we would on a bit more, that other than Discord, there wasn't a way to communicate with us or have a live chat option. So I think lessons learned is that we tried our best this time, but I think there are ways of like Yana saying, meeting people where they're at, using platforms that are a bit more diverse and available to more communities. And I think that's just a next step. Right. And and so having the experiences that you've had with vaccine hunters, what do you think the role of this kind of technology, this ability to reach people will play in future healthcare challenges, maybe not as extreme as a global pandemic, uh, and as well as system delivery? Well, I think it can be sort of applied to other challenges that we might be facing in health uh, service and healthcare delivery. 
in the whole world, really. There's there's a lot of places where the use of social media and the use of live uh, online platforms could be sort of the same as walking into like their equivalent of a service Ontario to speak with someone and get the resources that they need for people who can utilize the internet. The only thing is making sure that everyone has the digital literacy and the access to those technologies to be able to utilize those services. But we could see this working for connecting people to a new family doctor, or we've seen things like the telehealth in Ontario where people can call, you know, there there's, a, a plethora of opportunities for gaps in our service delivery to be bridged with these great community resource and technologies. I think from my perspective, working in the tech industry, we saw a different side of things, which was there was a huge shift. Like I know that internet has been around for the last few decades, but I think in the span of the last 18 months, it's seen leap and bounds mm-hmm. in terms of a lot of the healthcare. Like I, I live in the Peel region in Ontario and we didn't have an online system that really functioned too well, to be honest, like in terms of like it worked and there were a lot of appointments times, but then when we actually were looking into COVID appointments, the system sometimes would crash because there would be too many people on it. And I think, with each week that progressed, the system improved and improved and improved. So I think from the tech perspective, how I would see it is that there really is still a gap in terms of um, when we look at social determinants of health and what when we look at equity amongst um, communities, especially those that don't have access to the internet. So when everything is both online and both through the phone, as Dan was saying, Sometimes if people can't get through on the telephone with a health agent, then they are left almost helpless to book an appointment. So I think there are still improvements that can be made, such as I know in the Peel region, we also implemented at community centers almost like a little kiosk where you can go and try to look up appointments there. So I think there are still steps that we can take to improve um, technology and especially improve it in such a way that it's more available to everyone. Now, Dr. Tarun Katapali is a professor at the University of Regina's Joseph Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy. Before COVID, he had already worked to develop a digital policy tool called Smart Platform. When the pandemic hit, and Saskatchewan's indigenous communities were seeing rising infection numbers, even as more urban centers were able to curb the spread, Dr. Katapali and his team used the framework of Smart Platform and, working with indigenous people, created an app-based program to help combat community spread. It's called CoAway, and Dr. Katapali explains. So Tarun, uh, indigenous communities in Saskatchewan have had a kind of different COVID experience than the more uh, urban areas. Uh, can, can you kind of lay down the groundwork of, of what that COVID experience was like for those communities? Oh, wow. <laughs> As you might be aware, it's quite a complex situation. All indigenous communities would not have had the same experience, you know, uh, based on their location, based on their proximity to 
the major urban centers, such as Regina and Saskatoon. And that's true for other indigenous communities across Canada as well. And especially if you're in rural, rural and remote indigenous communities. Now, you got to understand that, you know, when you, when you talk about indigenous communities or when you're working with indigenous partners, you know, their ultimate goal is for self-governance and self-determination. I'll give you an example of uh, this incredible community that I work with. Um, it's a Métis community in northern Saskatchewan called Isle of La Crosse. And it's actually a town. It's a unique uh, jurisdiction. Uh, it's an incorporated town. And there's a mayor um, in the town. It's an, it's an indigenous uh, community. Mm-hmm. One of the first things that I heard from the mayor was lack of communication between his office and his jurisdiction and the health authority. So simply what that means is if you take one example, he was not getting his daily numbers of COVID-19 cases that he wanted to have to implement their strategies for their own community. And, you know, sometimes they're delayed by a week. So it's, it's very, you know, disjointed. So their experience has been, how do we develop policy? How do we put in safety measures when we don't know what exactly the risk is on the ground? Not to mention the distrust of the community members of anything to do with the medical community because of their experiences from the past. So Mm -hmm. you would notice that in Indigenous communities, the vaccination rates are lower. So if you just take these couple of examples, you can see the challenge in this sort of a persistent COVID problem as it's evolving. Um, it's, it's a different experience for every community, but I would say the primary challenge they face is lack of communication with the province or even the feds. Part of a way to address that lack of communication, uh, I imagine, is is part of how Coaway was developed and, and the reason behind it. Uh, absolutely, the main goal for us was to, you know, the the term I would use. One of my mentors uses this term. It's about inverting innovation. I don't want to throw a lot of jargon out there, but what I what I'm trying to say is, there is so much technology at our disposal, but most of this tech is highly centralized, whether it's in, you know, it's a big tech that is centralized in California or even, you know, technology such as the Health Canada app that was launched by the feds um, last year. Mm-hmm. So what we wanted to do was, hey, listen, there is this technology available. We have a strong evidence-based platform that engages individuals, citizens, patients in real time. How do we use this? to better understand what's happening in the communities and able and 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 generate big data uh, through citizen participation, uh, which would help uh, decision makers such as the mayor of Isla Lacrosse have that information come to him or their office in real time. And what we're talking about is not COVID-19 cases. What we're talking about is really upstream. We are, look, we are looking at the risk of communicable diseases, not about someone getting COVID-19 and reporting it. We are talking about the actual risk of COVID-19. So that could be minimized before there is an outbreak. And as you know, there's very little investment. If you look at upstream uh, preventive healthcare 
and downstream emergency healthcare. We are a very reactive system. So we wanted to completely append this, but use the technology and our digital platforms to potentially support and facilitate self-governance in remote indigenous communities. So if I'm a person in one of these communities, how can I use Coaway? What how how does it feel for for listeners? So, you know, when we eventually scale up Coaway, it'll probably be not called Coaway. Mm-hmm. It would be generalized to all communicable diseases. And if I'm someone on the ground and if I'm in a remote community where I lack resources, where I like lack access to healthcare or there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation. Mm-hmm. What this a tool like this will do is enable me to make better decisions about my own health, about my family's health, and potentially about my community health. So before we even, say, get an outbreak, how do we manage our healthcare decisions as an individual? as a family unit, as a community, and to avoid exposing ourselves to potential risks. What the, the key point there is real-time, detailed information about varying risk based on my own past medical history, mm-hmm. my own behavior, my own exposure risk. The key being... And I know I can see this question coming already, which is, what about my data? Is my data secure? Mm -hmm. What about um, the ownership of data? And that, to me, is a bigger innovation than our tech platform itself. We have ensured that every individual, every citizen, every patient who uses a platform such as CoAway owns their data. They have the ability to request deletion of data. So it's almost like democratizing technology, right? Mm -hmm. For a person on the ground, this is a tool that can help make you better decisions. And at the same time, you can be confident that you are the true owner of all your data. Yeah, that that is important. And and then it it sounds to me like this wasn't an idea that was developed specifically for COVID just COVID happened to happen as, as the idea yes. was as its time had come, so to speak. So I, I'm wondering, you know, what kind of applications outside of COVID could this have, um, you know, mm-hmm. for, for communities, maybe all over Canada, it, it sounds like it, it could be kind of scalable. Yes. No, I think uh, that's absolutely correct. One of the applications or one of the platforms that we are working on right now, and this work actually started before COVID, is to address anxiety and depression among Indigenous youth. Mm -hmm. A similar approach is being taken to potentially identify risks of anxiety, depression, stress in real time and address them in real time. I mean, We all know that mental health was a big issue even before COVID. It's become an even bigger issue during uh, this time. So I can see the application of these platforms for non-communicable diseases such as anxiety or depression. And it depends on the priorities of the communities. 
if a particular indigenous community would like to use technology to advance their own independence, if I may say so, mm-hmm. in accessing preventive services, I think this is one way to do it. Yes, there, there are risks, as you can imagine, of privatization of healthcare and so on and so forth. So that's why it's really important for indigenous communities to have a stake in technologies such as these. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I recognize the, the need for the, the self-governance piece, but I'm wondering what kind of outside government support would this require to sort of keep it going? I think if, if you think about for building systems such as these, uh, if we really put our money where our mouth is in terms of reconciliation, I think upstream platforms such as these require significant and consistent government support at the federal level. It's I, I think that is paramount, not to mention uh, the fact that the federal government has a big role to play when it comes to equitable access to internet, particularly in rural and remote communities. Uh, but that's a big issue right there. If, if we want platforms such as these to succeed, and it's not just about health, it's, it's about the economy of these communities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, equitable, equitable access to internet is where the federal government can play a huge role. This season of The Future Fix was never meant to be about the pandemic. It just sort of happened that way. But understandably, COVID's global reach and devastating impact meant that every episode was influenced or inspired by the virus in one way or the other. Every innovation, every bit of creativity, every proposed policy we covered, we had to mention COVID. It would be offensive, given the human and other costs of this pandemic, to talk of silver linings. But the lessons we've learned, oftentimes the hard way and out of sheer necessity, I hope we can hold on to and challenge ourselves to develop further. Many people in the face of literal catastrophe worked tirelessly and quickly with whatever data, technology, or digital tools they had at their disposal to help us beat this thing, often without any thought of praise or profit. And there's a lesson in that, a lesson we'd be foolish to squander. In a world threatened by disease, massive climate events, and growing inequality, remembering the lessons we learned from this pandemic is the fix. Thank you for listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. And our creative consultant is Sanchita Rajvanchi. This concludes Season 2 of our series, and I'd like to thank all our guests for sharing their expertise, and you, our listeners.